The Recovery Greenhouse is a podcast dedicated to the growth of ideas, concepts, and outlooks that support recovery and recovering communities. I'm Gerald Lott, your host and a person in long-term recovery. I'm also the founder and executive director of Salt Valley Voices of Recovery, a recovery community organization serving Northwest Illinois. I'm a certified recovery support specialist, an entrepreneur, a father, all sorts of things. Um, and after a long list of careers, I found my calling in helping others to find recovery. I, I presently work with many people every day, several addiction-related uh, advisory boards, um, all sorts of churches and community groups and such. And my core belief is that people have to make an effort to change their lives for recovery. There's a saying, no pain, no gain, and it's exactly correct. I don't believe a person can experience significant life changes without enduring, accepting, often welcoming discomfort. You see, it isn't the change that hurts, it's our resistance to it. And when I say that uh, uh, about the uh, the discomfort, I'm not saying that I want everybody to be miserable. Um, I'm just saying that growth hurts and dealing with some of the things from our past hurts. And you got to be willing to do that. And when I see people that aren't, I generally see people that can't let themselves fully into uh, recovery. And today my guest is somebody who I'm just super impressed by. Um, we just had our RecoverCon conference uh, in DeKalb and it was amazing and I'm sure we'll talk about that. And um, when I was looking for my speakers, I, I just being lazy went to Google and I Googled like top recovery speakers. And um, they came up with a, there was this one thing that had a list, top 10 TED Talk recovery speakers. And like number three was Joe Harvey Weatherford. So I reached out to Joe Harvey Weatherford thinking nobody will call me back. And lo and behold, guess who called me back? I was like, yeah, I'll do it. So thank you so much for traveling from Reno to rural Illinois. Uh, my <laughs> guest, Joe Harvey Weatherford, uh, speaker counselor, uh, act, uh, martial artist, model at one time, um, author, all the good things, right? Yes. What else? Anything else? That pretty much covers it. I was a professor for a long time teaching addiction courses at the University of Nevada, Reno. That was a big part of my story. It was interesting being on a college campus, especially being so young as well, being female, being young. Um, and I certainly understand a lot of the attitude towards the younger generation of entitled and lazy and all of it. But I'll tell you, my experience with these younger adults was really spectacular. I was always treated with respect. Um, I, I really felt that they were engaged and wanted to learn about addiction, either because it was in their family or they were seeing it amongst their friends. Obviously, college is a ripe time for some pretty out of control drinking. And I was really impressed. Um, it, it gave me a lot of hope and excitement <laughs> for the future. So it was a surprisingly good experience. So, so were you in your addiction at that time or had you had you come out and, and, and if you can't say if you can't say you know I know statues of limitations well I don't work there anymore so I, I will be honest and say when I um 
I was still drinking during my master's degree and I was super functional at that point. You know, I had it kind of, I don't want to say under control, but within control, like I wasn't getting arrested. I wasn't, you know, trying to kill myself. I was drinking a lot. Um, but it, I was doing it only at night as out of control as it was, I kind of had a grip on it during my master's program. And then when they asked me to teach, just kind of everything blew up. I called off an engagement. I moved back in with my parents and what was definitely abusive drinking just turned a full-blown addiction. And so I was drinking my first semester teaching an addiction course and the feeling I would have of hypocrisy going into that classroom was next level. But I'll tell you, I simultaneously had a very, very deep passion to help myself and to help other people. And I certainly wasn't on my A game, but I did reach a lot of people from that place of desperation, even in within, within myself. You know, we say like we teach what we need to learn. And that was that was me at my my worst just looking for help and answers and i actually went to rehab during that semester and got clean so right on. it's pretty phenomenal you know, it's it, it, it's interesting at one time i was a juvenile probation officer in uh chicago and my my addiction really was rolling and and in fact i think that and just being a crummy person cost me that job but it there was there there was a, a a sense that I was trying to find something I love what you said you know you, you teach what you need to learn type thing because yeah. um, I was trying to show these young people how to be a real adult while I was trying to learn how to be a real adult yeah you know? absolutely yeah Oh, that got real sad real quick. Huh? <laughs> so are you, so where are you originally from? What, what's like, give me the story. Who, who's Joe? I was born in Dallas and then my family moved to uh, Prescott, Arizona when I was four. So the majority of my, my youth was spent in Prescott. When I turned 15, um, I, I knew I needed to get out of my house. I needed to get out of my town. I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was doing a ton of drugs. I was failing out of school. Um, you know, both my parents had addiction issues. I had a lot of trauma that had never been addressed. I had been molested when I was four. And I was just very, um, like, extremely depressed. And I knew... I knew I wasn't going to make it. I had had one suicide attempt and I literally just wanted to die. So I told my parents, you need to send me to boarding school. I'm not doing good. And they were really resistant. They didn't want to. So I stole a car and I drove from Arizona to LA. Of course, I don't have a driver's license. Um, I had no money. You were 15? You were 15? I was 15 years old and I called my parents from a payphone on the Sunset Strip. I'll never forget it. And of course, you know, this is, I, I had a map, like an actual folding map. This is before 
cell phones, GPS, everything. And I called them from a payphone on Sunset Strip in LA. And I said, if you don't send me to boarding school, I'm going to drive straight south to Tijuana and you're never going to see me again. So that is your choice. And to their credit, I got back home. I went, they put me in like one of those behavioral, like mental institutions for a little while. But it was a boarding school. You know, teach me a lesson, but then they put me in boarding school. And I got to finish in at a boarding school. It's called the Judson Academy in Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a phenomenal place. The land was worth like $500 million. So once the matriarch of the family died, the kids put it up for sale. And um, so the school isn't there anymore, which fair enough, you know. Um, but it was great because I went to school with people from all over the world. All of the students I went to school with were, were from Japan, Saudi Arabia, Mexico. It was just this really eclectic, diverse place to go to school and learn. And most of the kids there were very rich. I mean, it was like Santana's niece, my best friend's mom owned all of Coca-Cola production in Mexico, you know, so I was definitely an odd you know, fish in this pond of, you know, just next level wealth. And, um, and it was awesome. But with that wealth came a lot of blow, you know, I mean, I was doing Coke all the time, but in that different environment, I was still drinking, I was still partying, but I was going to school, getting my stuff done, not getting into trouble. I graduated a year early, second in my class, full ride academic scholarships to wherever I wanted. Um, So I really got it together. And I decided my parents were moving to Nevada. They wanted me to come with them for a year because I wasn't 18 yet. And then I would go back and go to school in Arizona. But when I moved to Nevada, to Reno with them, I got a job as the buyer for a fitness center at the country club here. So now I'm getting paid to shop. And I loved my job. I started school here and I didn't leave for a very long time. So during my undergrad, I was partying all the time. I have so many embarrassing moments. They still pop into my brain and I just, ugh, my whole body closes. But again, it was one of those I was able to maintain. I I kept my scholarship. Um, I did well in school. I had decent relationships. Where I got into trouble is I started modeling. So I was taking a red eye flying to Miami every like Wednesday night, shooting in Florida for five days and flying back to the university, taking classes two days a week. And that lifestyle was just it was the death of me because not only did i not have to show up to work sober it was encouraged that i wasn't you know so i i was making stupid money just hand over fist you know drinking partying traveling all over the united states um Yeah. And I just really lost myself. But what's fascinating is towards the end of it, I had this moment that I'll never, ever forget. I woke up on the floor of my house in Newport Beach. So here I am like in this sick house in Southern California. I'm dating one of the chargers. Like I'm making tons of money. I've got like a hundred K in cash stuffed under my mattress 
you know, my friends are like porn stars and playboy models. And I'm just living this life that some people would be like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I had just shot for FHM. My magazine had just come out and I hated myself. Like I woke up on the floor of my kitchen and I was supposed to be flying to a job. And I was like, I'm back here again. Like I literally want to die. The money, the accolades, whatever. And, you know, the modeling industry was just awful. It was like, I was too skinny or I was too heavy or I was whatever. I mean, it was not um, like you go, oh, you just shot for these magazines. You must have felt good about yourself. And it was the exact opposite. I mean, I had taken so much criticism and yeah, it was empty. I wanted to die. And that was the first time I went to treatment and I got out of, I got out of that world because I knew I wouldn't survive in it. And so I went to treatment for 90 days. I was able to stay sober for six months, but I had no real healing, um, it was sad. One of the counselors that had helped me process a lot of my sexual abuse history ended up hitting on me. And I'm not blaming him for my relapse, but that was a big part of it. Um, I just felt so unlovable and like somebody was always just going to want something from me. And that nobody ever saw me. Nobody really cared about me. It was awful. And then I, that's when I kind of, I started graduate school. I was trying to get my life together. I really did fight for myself. That's one thing I can say. I've always fought for myself, um, but I wasn't sure I was going to make it. And I was never in denial. I mean, I work with a ton of people now. Um, and thankfully my clients aren't, aren't either because I just can't stand that. You know what I mean? It's like, obviously there's a problem. You may not want to do something about it, but let's just be real. Like you're not well. And I, I really appreciated that within myself. I wasn't trying to pretend I knew I was sick and I was fighting for myself and I couldn't stop. It was, it, the craving would hit and there was no other option. I, I think about this time I was playing chicken, you know, in a pool with somebody and they were on my shoulders and they were like drowning me, you know, that feeling where you're trying to hit them off and get them off, but they're like trying to win. And so I mm -hmm. was literally being drowned. And I can remember, I wanted to get sober as bad as I wanted to take a breath in that moment. And I still couldn't do it. Right. I could right. not do it. So it's, you know, anybody that's listening to this, that's still in it. Like my heart really does go out to you. It is, it is an unbelievable place to be in you know life. you know um you saw me writing some notes there and and thank you for sharing that story that's very touching um my guest is joe harvey weatherford uh ted talk uh professor uh recovery counselor author um so first of all you said that you didn't feel heard and i want to tell you that you were heard at our conference um you would be amazed how many people have called me texted me or in conversation said they loved what you said um, nice thank you yeah yeah you were definitely heard and um thank you for for being here and and you know the the interesting thing is you were talking about your school what was the name of the school that got sold for a half a billion bucks 
<laughs> the Judson Academy. All right. So I had the occasion when I was a kid, my parents sent me to an exclusive school. Um, I was an only child, you know, African-American. My parents had done fairly well for themselves. They still lived on the far south side of Chicago in a, a relatively upscale African-American enclave. But they sent me to school way on the other side of town in this private school that was, you know, it's like me and five other kids in the whole school that are African-American. And wow. the, the kids there are just stupid wealthy. I mean, we had some dough, but I was the bottom of the top. You know what I mean? Yes. And so um, as, I, as I think about some of the things I heard you say, and hopefully we'll discuss about you know, how you deal with childhood trauma and shame and those things. I think about how mine was compounded by being in that. And I, and I, I know that I got super amounts of privilege from being in that environment. I I won the lottery when it came to education. I, I, they put me where I needed to be. But socially, it was tough. You know, yeah. it, it, it's tough to be the only kid because remember, I lived on the far side of town. We didn't, like during the summer, this was before cell phones. You didn't get to run up to the other side. Of, there was no Uber, right? I was a, a, an hour and a half bus ride away. So the day school let out was the last time I saw those kids until the first day of school again, mm. right? And and so whatever they did during the summer, I wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> you know I'm not I'm not in on the inside joke. You know, remember when remember when Tommy did, fell off the bike? No, I don't. I wasn't there. You know, yeah. and so I just always felt kind of like an outsider. And and the interesting thing is, lo and behold, I find drugs, and suddenly my phone's ringing. Suddenly I'm you know one of the gang. Let's make sure Gerald's around. Um. So yeah, I, I could really identify with that and and uh, and feeling feeling outside. So sorry to go off on that weird tangent, but that's yeah. what you made me think of. Thank you for sharing that though, because I I do think it's especially God right now. I I don't usually get super caught up and pulled into especially geopolitical issues that I have zero control over. I really try to protect my energy. I pray for people. I, but when I, I know I can't do anything, I don't allow myself to get um, so impacted, but I've really, really been just so sad by what's been going on um, in the world right now. And one thing I just keep returning to is this, this shared human experience of feeling alone, of feeling not a part of, of feeling scared, of feeling left out, of, you know, just especially children trying to make sense of, of such abstract concepts. And I just, I mean, obviously there are people that are going through like a, a level of trauma. I thank God never had to endure on any level. But I'm talking about that shared experience of not belonging. Mm -hmm. I'm really feeling that thread of connection through all of us and just 
some part of that like brings me peace in some kind of weird morbid way but it is good to know you know that we all i think have been there yeah i you know i i too am really struggling with with the situation in the world and it's very difficult for me to to get these things to line up um because I feel like you said, like, I can't control it. I'm not part of it. It, it doesn't pertain to me. But the, the exact thing that I was using drugs and alcohol to hide, which is my compassion, my love, my empathy, my, 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 my wanting to give is, is just being hammered on a daily basis. And, and I can't stop waking up in the morning and pulling out my phone and reading about all the, you know there was a woman at my first home group that said that resentments are like you have bad things that happen to you on a cd and you pull it out and you hit it and you're like ah that hurts and then you rewind and you watch it again and then you rewind right. that's that's how i feel like i'm i literally wake up in the morning and i pull out my phone to see what terrible thing has occurred and um yeah. Well, know. and there's just so much, almost a weird comfort and discomfort. You know, we think about that homeostasis and the organism always wanting to return to what it knows. And so I can find myself getting lost in the chaos as well. And I'm like, okay, what part of this feels familiar? What part of me mm -hmm. is actually, this is, it can almost replace the addiction in ways. When I finally got out of my marriage, which was very chaotic and a drug in and of itself, the hardest part was the peace. I'm just like, whoa, here I am. And it's just, it's just this even keel for the most part mm -hmm. experience. And it was unsettling to me a little bit. And so I think about, you know, what's happening now. And I mean, it's just next level with social media, the things that we are able or unfortunately able to see. I, I'm kind of split on it, but this guy said it so beautifully. He's like, yo, this, this is war porn is doing the same thing to your brain as somebody who's a porn addict watching. It's just these huge floods of chemicals and experiences and crashes and fears. And, you know, I'm, so I'm trying to be mindful. I don't want to be ignorant. And I also feel somewhat like I owe it to pay attention. Uh, just as another human occupying space on this earth, like I don't want to be ignorant and turn a blind eye to suffering, but I also don't want to lose myself in it. So it's that delicate balance of how can I pay attention, but also from a grounded centered place and not let this become another way in which I hijack my peace in search of chaos, even though that's the exact opposite of what I truly want. So, so Joe, then, you know, you, when you spoke, you talked, and, and first of all, what did you think of T.J. Woodward? I love that man. He is so special. Isn't he He's amazing? Just... Oh, ah, my God. Yes. All right, so so think about T.J. and his concept of brilliant strategies, right? And when, when yes. we're hurt, when we're small, we come up with the brilliant strategies. I look at the news, and I see a child climbing over rubble to look for his family. 
And I think to myself, what will this child have to do to make that okay 20 years from now? You know, yeah. is he going to express that as hate? Is he going to express that as self-destruction through addiction or, or some other wild thing? I mean, that child's not the same. He can't. It, or maybe I'm maybe I'm putting me in his place, but some of the things I'm seeing, I, I don't, I, I can't process. You know, I don't think it will ever be okay. And I think this is one of the misconceptions when we talk about trauma work and healing, like something that is is horrific and traumatizing. I don't think we'll ever be okay. But I do believe that we're able to be with it differently. I do believe that we can keep our hearts open and that we can hold the not okayness, you know? And that to me is the goal. It's like, it's diffusing the energy. And I saw this video, I actually shared it and I've been, you know, I don't, I don't want to get involved in this from any kind of political message, because I know what I don't know. And it's mm -hmm. everything right. comes to this conflict. But the video I shared was a little boy and he was probably two and a half, three years old. And he was in the hospital and he was shaking. And we don't often get exposed to the visual of what trauma looks like in someone. We hear it, we hear people describe it, We've had our own pain, but when you actually see an individual in shock, the way that the body shakes, I mean, we are talking, this is a spiritual, emotional, physiological trauma that this, this little poor little baby is feeling. This doctor comes over and starts rubbing his back. And that's the first thing that, that touch, that connection, that comfort. And he starts talking to this little boy. And then he starts listening. And as this little boy, and it's of course, you know, it's in a different language. I don't know what he's saying, but as he starts expressing himself and the doctor holds him and starts rocking him, he finally cries. He, his little body stops trembling. And because his pain is so delicately and compassionately witnessed by someone safe, he's able to cry and let it out. Now, that is obviously a temporary relief to the immediate shock and trauma, but it's like, if that's what can happen and we can keep intervening with people as they continue to tell their story and it's witnessed with compassion, that trauma happens, but the PTSD, the addiction, the brilliant strategies to escape that trauma, I really believe can be mitigated. Will that child ever be okay with what happened? No. And I believe that that child can be a loving, functional, beautiful, compassionate human. But it and takes so when, that witness. When you speak, you speak about a lot of like, how do we move forward when we have these traumas in our in our history? And and so, you know, I, I hope I'm coming to the right place with with the, these questions because it. it to me, I know that there may have been a time when drinking and alcohol and, and drugs were social. I, I think about, I, I always tell the story, you know, I know my wife, my wife is a nurse. Every four months or so, one of the nurses is getting married or she's getting divorced or, you know, and they all go out to the bar and they, they dance, 
and they, you know, they wear the funny hats and they drink out of the, you know, the perverted shaped cups. Right. Right. But she's a social drinker and that's it for her for a while. Yeah. You know, she's having fun with her girls. I don't drink like that. I'm in the basement mad as hell at the, the guy next door, you know, chugging them, thinking how I'm going to kill him, you know, Same. and that doesn't, that doesn't get me there fast enough because like you said, I'm trembling. I'm so angry. So then I go to the cocaine and once I hit that, it's, it's over. I'm, you've lost me for a while. I'm, I'm, you know, and, um, so it's, it's not fun. It's not an amusement park for me. Um, you know, treatment is that, or drugs and alcohol were that doctor rubbing my back and listening to me. And that's yeah. really sad. Yeah. You know, I, I think about my brilliant strategy of addiction. And when I really get to the core of what it did for me, it, is, it gave me reprieve, you know, disassociation, whether through the use of drugs and alcohol or me just splitting out of myself or numbing in whatever way possible has always been my tool. And it really, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for myself. It, it just came from like just needing a break, you know, just, just needing to not be in this experience, feeling what I was feeling. And to me, that was really sobriety is being able to sit with those really unpleasant, really horrific emotions, like just finally surrendering to let me feel all of this and know that I'll be okay. There, you just said it. That's the key, right? And that's what I was talking about in my intro, being okay with the discomfort, you yeah. know? You know, you go to the dentist, you're like, this is gonna suck. Yeah. It's a, right? <laughs> There's no way around. This is going to suck, but I got to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I want to, like, I got so many things to ask you. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so the first one, you were, you were involved in college. What are your thoughts on collegiate recovery communities? Are you familiar? Have you been involved in any? What's the deal? You know, it's interesting. Um, a couple of my dear friends actually started one on the campus at the University of Nevada, Reno. So they started NRAP, Nevada Recovery and Prevention Community. And I think it's phenomenal. I love the idea that on campus, there is a safe space for individuals who don't want to drink. They can find a community of people that are also in recovery, have been through some things, are looking to stay sober, get resources. I think it's really important because the reality is so much of campus life really does revolve around drinking. And that's a mm -hmm. whole nother conversation. But I think it's important, you know, to have a space for students that they can meet like-minded people and they can get resources easily. I, I love it. I think it's phenomenal. That's why we took RecoverCon to NIU. Our hope is to create a relationship there and start building that there. That 100%, you know? Beautiful. Um, my guest is Joe Weatherford. And um, like, what's it like to do a TED Talk? And, and what's <laughs> the world been since you've done it? You know, it's so funny because I didn't want to be a speaker. Like that was never something that I wanted to be. Um, the university 
was having TEDx hosted on campus and they really wanted one of the university staff to do a TED talk. And I was asked, um, you know, would I be interested? Would I want to apply? And it's interesting because I taught when I first began a 100 level course. So I was essentially giving a speech three times a week to 150 students. So I really got to hone my skills and practice and figure out what I wanted to say. It had prepared me and it's cool because I've been really feeling into this concept of, you know, what God is doing behind the curtain and how we often have no clue. And so I love the idea of manifestation. I love the idea of creating our life, quote unquote, but I also think there's so much brilliance behind the scenes and our small minds could never know what God has in store for us. And so yeah. when I was asked to do that TED talk, I, ha I had zero clue what it would eventually turn into. And it was interesting because at that point I was very comfortable public speaking, but it's a different ball game. Like you have to memorize it, which I never do. I kind of more speak just freely and off the cuff. I really like engaging with the audience when it's a smaller crowd. So I had never memorized anything. And so that really pushed me out of my comfort zone. And then also you show up and it's dark with a spotlight on you. And it's just like, Oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. It was just next <laughs> level. And, um, I had watched a couple of speakers go before me that were phenomenal, just totally freeze and have to restart like five times. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to coach myself out of that. And so it was a great experience. It really stretched me. Um, one of the best pieces of advice, which I use this now in like before I go into divorce court or before like anything stressful and this guy's like, you need to stand like Superwoman for like 30 <laughs> seconds and just own it. Just be in this superhero pose. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so lame. There's no way I'm doing it. And right before I went on stage, I was like panicking. And so I did. And I put my shoulders back and I put my hands on my hips and I put my chest out, my head up. And I stood in this power stance and I was like, I got this, you know, and it there really was like. You know, when we're when we're curled in our ourselves, when we're turtled up, we're protected. You know, it's like that sends messages to our body, just like when we're like, "Yeah, bring it." That sends messages to our body, and it really helped. So, yeah, you you were like, "Come at me, bro." Yeah, bring it. You know, yep. I I, I think you did amazing. I've watched your TED talk several times, and I've referred it to other people. So what is the world like now? Are like people calling you every week? Are you traveling? When I first talked to you, you were in Mexico. So, you know, you must be like super rich now because you you live in multiple countries. You would think I'm still uh, I'm still battling for my house in Mexico. That's a whole other story. But it was interesting. So when COVID hit, I was teaching at the university and my ex-husband and I owned a martial arts school. It was extremely successful. We had 700 students. Um, you know, I mean, we did well. When COVID hit, I knew it was not coming back. 
So I told my ex at that point, I'm like, I really think we need, we need to look at selling the school and I want to move overseas and let's just live lean, live on the beach somewhere and just be done, you know? And it was interesting because that's exactly what we did. And people were like, oh my God, what do you do all day? And I was like, whatever I want. And it was awesome. You know, it was so great. Like I felt zero responsibility to work or to, you know, anything. It was, I really enjoyed that time. Um, when I realized I needed to leave that relationship, it was just super unhealthy and I had truly outgrown him. And there is just no other way to say it. I waited. I was patient. I babysat. I did all the things I could and it just wasn't going to work anymore. And I left. And when I did, I walked away from that really cush lifestyle and being in another country, he did exactly what I thought he would do, which is I'm keeping all the money and try, come try and get it, you know, and it's, it's a very difficult process in another country. Um, so we're still in the middle of that, but I really, I made the decision. I don't care. I'll, I'll make my own money. Like I know who I am. I know what I can do. I know what I bring. I had already looked at starting to do more work in the addiction world again um, because I have a passion for it and I don't want to waste my gifts. I really, um, I feel very, very strongly about giving back in that way. And so I had started to kind of teach and do trainings again. I've done a lot of work with courts, specifically advocating lobbying for drug courts and how do we help people ask for help? And when they do get caught, how do we give them treatment options instead of punishment? And so I started doing that. Um, but that's really the first a year ago, I did some trainings for the legal system. And that was my first time really back in it. So now with my new partner, who's also in long-term recovery, starting Recovery Remix is like my dream, just a, a really affordable membership platform where we can just share everything we have learned, where we can learn from amazing people, like all the people you had brought to that conference and just share knowledge and give people an alternative to AA. Um, AA well, is- You wonderful. know, Joe Weatherford, um, author, professor, martial artist, model, we were going to talk about Recovery Remix, which is the program that you're putting together with your partner. Um, you said it's kind of like an alternative to AA. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really designed for people that are just wanting to cut back or maybe stop. But it's not like level five. I need treatment, medical intervention. You know, I, I really don't ever want to misrepresent what we're offering Meaning if it is somebody that's just wanting to quit or somebody that's been in recovery and is looking for either an alternative to AA or something to supplement, then that's really what this is designed for. Um, I'm a firm believer in medical detox. I'm a firm believer in one-on-one -on -one coaching or therapy. I, you know, but this is something to supplement and to help. Uh, I know a lot of people in long-term recovery that do not want to go to meetings anymore, but still want to stay connected. So that is really who we're looking at. Um, college students, people that are, maybe it's getting a little out of control and they're just wanting to understand themselves better. 
So that's really what Recovery Remix is. It is 12 years of knowledge and experience studying as an addiction specialist. Everything I've seen work, everything I've seen not work. And a lot of my focus is always on the emotional aspect of recovery. There's people doing great work. Um, Ronnie Landis, I think is his name, has a program out right now, and it's a dopamine reset. I mean, there's so many different layers to addiction, recovery, and healing that I think are really important for people to know about. So it's also a central hub for us to share, you know, other people's work and resources. So you're talking, you're talking about like the multiple paths to recovery and, and, you know, I've, I've been working on a concept myself of affinity grouping, which hits in the, exactly kind of the same place, which is at three, four, five years of sobriety, kind of pull away from the tables of AA. You know, right. it's, it's just natural, right? Because I came in at 10, maybe 12, right? And I'm just 100% like I need help and I need to help people and I'm just there for it. And then after about three years, you know, my life's getting better. I still believe in all this stuff, but I'm not at yeah. 10 and I'm, I'm at six, you know, I'm at, I'm, right. I'm at six, I'm at five. And then, you know, you start hearing the sad stories and I'm not there anymore. You know, yeah. I, I, it's not that I don't empathize, but. You ever notice, Jay? Do you listen to Jay Z? Yeah. Oh, definitely. All right. You ever notice, like, his first albums were like, "Man, I got to get me some money," and then his middle yeah. albums were like, "Look, I'm getting money," and now all I his got my money. Are like, I got my money. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of the, like, you know, at, at some point you shift, and your story isn't the same, right? Right. So. How do you find those people? And one of the things that's interesting, when we set up our RCO, I thought I'd make this beautiful logo. You saw it. We took pictures in front of it. And I put it on a sign in front of the building. And I was just waiting for the like three, four, five year sober people to come marching up and be like, we want to sponsor people. They don't. They're not coming. Mm -hmm. They're, They're they're on to their life. They've got the new girlfriend, the new house, the new job. Yeah. So so I, I think you're hitting a, a mark. How do you do it? How does Recovery Remix do it? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question and it's fun to be in the infancy of growing this and kind of in that exploration process of what serves me at this stage. I mean, I'm almost 12 years away from my addiction, but like what's still really applicable. And to me, it it comes to that emotional empowerment. That is, that is my jam. And we are all consistently, whether we're sober or not going through, I mean, life is in a life. So without having that coping mechanism, I'm not at the point where I worry that I'm going to drink anymore. I also don't have any you know, like crazy thoughts, like I could, I just, it's just not something I that's present in my field. What I am very, very dedicated to is 
being present with my pain and then turning that pain into power. And that I believe is relevant for people in all stages of recovery. And I also really firmly believe that, you know, there can be some dogmatic kind of pieces to recovery in general. And so giving people a space where it's like, if you don't want to talk about how many days you have all the time, don't. And if you feel X, Y, Z, then yes. And even with the, the steps, I, I think the steps are beautiful. I love them. I wish everyone would do them. I think they're insanely valuable. And I believe it's important to look at why those defects of character exist in the first place. So it's like, as we're doing this radical self-inventory, it's not enough just to say, oh, I'm entitled or, oh, I was selfish or, oh, I lied here to get what I want. It's like, why? And that's what we are really on a mission to do as well, is just get people thinking differently and feeling differently. And through that shared experience of, yeah, it's possible to not drink or use and actually be so happy. Because what I found in AA a lot as well was people that had 20 years sober that were like, yeah, I'm still a miserable drunk. I'm like, but you haven't drank in 20 years. That sucks. I'll be honest. If I was still identifying as a miserable drunk, I would drink. Like, why? You know, I don't want to be sober and miserable. I have zero interest in that. And so this community is really about like, no, we come from a place of knowing that thriving exists, that knowing what it is to be sober and happy because we live it and people will feel that. And I think it's important to have role models that that speak about it from that place instead of like, nope, it's hard white knuckle and I got every single day remind myself what a piece of I am. No, you actually don't. I mean, if that works for you, great. I find that there's there's like this, what I call intellectual laziness that occurs in, in some of our, our more established uh, pathways to recovery. And so then you start hearing these things that nobody knows why we say it, but we say it, right? Like no uh, relationships in the first, you know, don't make any major changes in the first year. And I'm telling you, you know, when I was getting sober, Halle Berry was that girl, right? If she had called and been like, hey, Gerald, I want to go on a date, I'm starting a relationship. <laughs> it's yeah. And you would, you know, like, like I'm talking to my sponsor, like, come on, man. You know, if I'm, in a, if I'm in an abusive relationship, I'm supposed to stay there because it hasn't been a year? Right. You know, that doesn't make sense. You know, but we've, we've heard it so many times that we take it as canon. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued by what's new what's coming not in place of but as you said as a supplement to 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 my understanding because truthfully there's not a lot of understanding going on at some of the tables right there's recitation there's you know there, there's there's remembering by rote right there, there's blind obedience which i believe in and i they told me don't drink i tried not to drink that it has worked for me right but, but how do on, I live in this world? Right. Because that, that blind obedience is really useful in those early stages. But I, for me, it's like, yeah, there's an evolution to that. And I think it loses some people. So it's important to have flexibility and harm reduction approaches and, and other 
methods available. And that's really, you know, that's what we're all about is providing options. So I, I go to recoveryremix.com and then, you know, what am I finding there? What does it look like? What's the deal? So the membership site, well, the website is up. So by all means, go and give us your email address and then we will let you know as soon as the membership portal opens. We're putting a few tweaks on a couple of the videos. So there'll be some, some actual like a guide videos on how to use the site also breaking down our four-step method. And then what we're going to do is we're going to run a live call every week. And so really what you're paying for is that live call. It'll give people a chance to ask questions. We'll have different topics every week, all around emotional intelligence, sobriety, breaking free, what it looks like in long-term recovery, but mainly the emotional intelligence piece. And so those live interactions give people a chance to connect with us. And those videos will then go on the site and they will be hashtagged and separated into a vault of just information. So at any point, if anybody is struggling, they're now a member, they can go and find a video on cravings. They can find a video on intimacy and sobriety. They can find, you know, what do I do if my partner still drinks and I don't? Like we're going to cover just a wide range of topics that come up mainly with, you know, Doug and I work with individuals in recovery. And so we're constantly getting feedback of what people are asking and looking for. So we want to just have this, this vault of resources where in that moment you can click on it and be led through a breathing exercise. You can learn. I want to right? make some videos. I want to make some videos. I would love that. We would love that. I'll give you some videos. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. And that's it. And just bringing people together that are amazing and people that have their own programs. Come on, share, tell our audience, you know, it's like our passion is for people to get better when we're creating this site. I mean, yes, it's a business, but everything we do is with that intention of what would have helped us, what would have served us, what would we have needed? What will people feel connected to you know and it's really yeah it's exciting it's i had to stop though i got really um caught up to the date of the conference that we just had and i needed it done by then and it had to be up and i was in this hotel room stressing out because the website wasn't perfect and, blah, blah, and i finally i just stopped i'm like oh i am making this so hard on myself there right. is nothing that needs to happen right right this second. Right. Like, if I'm going to do this, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. That's it's going it. to be a great thing. And That's so it. I had to check myself. And I did. <laughs> and it's been great since. Well, speaking of having fun, did you have fun when you came to Illinois? Oh my God. I can't even tell you how much fun I had. It was awesome. Meeting everybody was phenomenal. The speakers were amazing. Really, really connected with Tara Connors, who I know you had on your podcast. So I'm sure your listeners really got to hear a similar version of what I got to hear at the conference. But it's interesting because I really remember the unfolding of her story in real time. I remember the hate right. that America had 
how dare Miss USA do cocaine? And it's interesting because at the time I thought like, of course she is. You know, she's right, this young right. 20 year old that just got catapulted to fame. She's dating Travis Barker, living in New York. They're like, she did blow. And I'm like, duh. You know, I just feel like right. everyone was so confused. Right. But, uh, no, she, yeah. was, she was amazing. You know what I like about it? I go to a lot of these conferences. And, and to your point of what you said about Recovery Remix, I built RecoverCon as the conference I want to go to, right? Because if yeah. I got to do it and I got to pay for it, I'm going to at least have a good time. <laughs> but I love that it's not like where the speakers come in from a back door, they say their piece, they go and they're gone, right? You guys were all like part of the crowd. You were talking to people. People could walk up to you. And I love that to the very last speaker, you know, they're like, because you opened it, you started, right? You were the first yeah. re real speaker and you set the tone. So for the rest of the day, everybody's like, well, like Joe said, you know, I'm building off of what Joe said. You know, it was, it was all, it was a conversation, right? You know, yes. it, it was so awesome. And, and I love that, that everybody was interacting and I'd look over and I'd see like people sitting in the corner having a conversation and you could tell that they were coming from the heart. And and we were all at the same place. And we were all on the same level. And that that was so was just so heartwarming. And then people outside playing bags and oh, it was yeah. great, you know. It was uh, phenomenal. And it was such a beautiful reminder though of, of what we're doing here. And um, you know, I well, I don't think about drinking anymore and I don't go to meetings. Um I do know with every cell in my being that everything good in my life is because I stopped drinking. And there were a lot of people who helped me, who fought for me, who believed in me. And I am very, very humble and grateful for them. And to be sitting at that conference, sharing the stage with such phenomenal, wonderful people, yourself included, and, and just feeling like this is almost a surreal experience that I get to be up here and share my story because I really didn't think I would make it. I really, truly didn't. And so, like I said, well, I don't white knuckle or get cravings or anything else. I owe everything in my life to the fact that I don't drink anymore. And I am so excited when I hear a conference like yours where people get up there and they're real. And it's not like a dare scare tactic thing. It's like people just sharing this core, you know, just to bring up full circle, this core feeling of not belonging and pain and how we managed that and how sick we got and how much better we are now. And it's really beautiful, you know, the art of telling our story, making ourselves available to help one another and just having role models people out there that are like, I, I did it. You can too. I, that is special and it's important. And I'm glad that, you know, that conference exists, that your podcast is here because I didn't meet a lot of people that I wanted to be like when I was trying to get sober. I met a lot of people that didn't drink, but were not in recovery. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I get to see people that have this greater vision in life and joy that is, it's phenomenal. And I'm so blessed that I am there. And it's really an honor to come and talk and share. And that conference was 
very special. I wish there had been a thousand people at it. It was there will so be, nice. There will be next year. And, and as I told you, you're, you're part of the family now. So you keep coming ah. back as much as you want. You, you know, um, I, I, I don't think I could close this any better than you just did. Thank you. And, and you know, the, the, the thing is that we, however we get to where we are in our recovery, owe it to those people. Like I discussed, you know, we had people at our conference that were from the local recovery home and were less than 30 days sober for them to see people like you and, and your partner and the other wonderful, wonderful people that spoke. We had over 27 speakers all coming, spending the day. And as I said, there were no big eyes, a little use. It was, we're all together in this thing. And so thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for being a part of the podcast, you know? So, thank you. My pleasure. All right. So everybody out there, if you're listening, um, recovery is possible. Um, I heard somebody say recovery is not only possible, it's probable. If you are struggling, if you need help, if you are in a place where you don't know what to do next, ask for help. Ask some police officer, ask your reverend or pastor or priest, ask somebody at the hospital, ask your neighbor, go out. You know what? You can even probably ask a bartender. It sounds stupid, but you could probably say to a bartender, I need help. And they know where to get you some help. But whatever you do, don't do it alone. Don't don't sit in, in your own stuff thinking, I need help, but keep it to yourself. If you can't find somebody to tell, then call me. My number is 779-707-0151. As you can tell, I work with people from all over the country, and I will find somebody in your area who will help you. And if I can't, then I will come and help you. But there is help out there. So um, if you, if you, absolutely need to just stand on the corner of your block and screen i'm losing my damn mind but somebody will help you um thank you to my guest joe weatherford you're amazing and and i hope that we get to talk much much more and and do all sorts of projects and stuff together um the podcast is produced by me so it's crummy you gotta do what you gotta do um thank you to slang music group for the music thank you to nrg media for the airtime thank you to all of our local and national partners for all the work you do to help us to continue what we're doing um and you know in the meantime until we talk again take care of yourself <laughs>